I invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 to 26. Matthew 5, starting in verse 21. You have heard that the ancients were told, You shall not commit murder. Whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. Whoever shall say to his brother, Raka, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court, and whoever shall say, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into fiery hell. If therefore you are presenting your offering at the altar, and therefore remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and present your offering. Make friends quickly with your opponent at law while you are with him on the way in order that your opponent may not deliver you to the judge and the judge to the officer and you be thrown into prison. Truly I say to you, you shall not come out of there until you have paid the last cent. Father, I pray that you would open especially verses 23 and 24 for us in these few minutes we have together. And that you would be our teacher and that you would guard us from Satan who plucks the word off the path as soon as it's sown. Please protect us, Lord, right now. Draw near and give us ears to hear, hearts to be changed. In Jesus' name, amen. Now this is a unit. 21 to 26 is clearly a unit. And as I pondered it, the focus for this morning is verses 23 and 24, but it it begs to be understood in its unit. And so I'm going to talk about the unit tonight. I'm going to struggle with what what does verse 21 and 22 mean? Call somebody a fool, you're going to go to hell. What does that mean? We'll deal with that tonight. What is Raqqa? We'll deal with that tonight. What are these courts? Deal with that tonight. Or verses 25 and 26, make friends quickly while you're on the way. What's that mean? What's this prison? How long, what's this last farthing we're supposed to pay? What is all that? That's tonight. Right there in the middle, verses 23 and 24 is something that we have to hear this morning. But we need to hear it in context. The reason we need to hear it is because it has to do with our master planning vision and the climax that we're moving to next Sunday morning. We've got a vision. The Lord has given us a vision and a mission. We exist to spread a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples. That's worth living for. That's worth giving for. It's worth dying for. It's worth a lifetime. We've got that. And we've got fresh initiatives. And we've got 2,000 by 2,000. And we've got a cluster of values that are worth living out. They're all here in this, this booklet. This is so precious.
to me. We've got a way to go. We've got a great cause to live for. And as we prayed, especially as the the resource task force prayed, it seemed to us that the challenge before us should be simplified financially onto the debt of this building, $1.2 million dollars, instead of about a dozen other one-time fundraising things that we could have focused on next Sunday, in order to free up about $300,000 annually instead of raising five, six, seven, eight hundred million dollars one time for special projects. That seemed the way to go. And many, I believe, are embracing it. I got a little note this week. Another one of many that came in the mail from one of our seniors down in Florida. She wrote a little note here, freeing the future. What a tremendous plan from God in Christ. Put her name down and send a little check. So it seems like many people from the oldest to the youngest are saying, yes, let's get rid of the debt. Let's do it next Sunday morning. And that's what it's about. That's what we'll pray about alongside the bigger vision on Saturday night. But... You've got a bunch of master planners in this church that are very keen on saying that's not the main thing. That's not the main obstacle to doing what we're called to do, debt on this building. Not the main obstacle. Money is not the main issue in the vision. It's not God's main issue. It shouldn't be our main issue. There are bigger things at stake than paying off the debt on this building. That could remain and magnificent things could happen or that could go and nothing could happen. It's not the main issue. That was real plain. It came through loud and clear. And therefore, as we set up the climax of freeing the future, I was told, you can't just do a money thing. This Sunday has to be another kind of thing. And Saturday night has to be there. And, and, and Sunday morning next week is a God thing. It's not just a money thing. And so... What we're about this morning is something very, very crucial. You see it in verses 23 and 24. You could preach the sermon. It's a very simple text. If you just take those verses in and of themselves. Something is prior to money, the text says. Something is bigger than money, the text says. Something is deeper than debt, the text says. So let me read them again. Verses 23 and 24. If, therefore, you are presenting your offering at the altar, add next Sunday morning. And there remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your offering there before the altar. Go your way. First, be reconciled to your brother. And then come. Present your offering. Now, notice the word, therefore. If, therefore. Now, whenever you see that word, you just are forced to back up and ask, wherefore? What, what did you just say, Jesus, that prompted you now to say, therefore, 
you come to make your pledge next Sunday and remember that somebody's got something against you, put your pledge card down and go do that first. What did you say that prompted you to therefore say this? That's what we're going to talk about tonight, but I'm going to sum it up in one sentence here. What he said in verses 21 and 22 is, Despising your brother imperils your soul. That's my summary of verses 21 and 22. Despising a brother, and I think in the context it means fellow human being, not Christian. Talk about that a little more tonight. Despising another person threatens your very soul with eternal damnation. Acts like murder, attitudes like anger, words like raka, fool, imperil the soul. We'll go into detail on that tonight. But suffice it to say that despising another person threatens your soul. Therefore, what? If I have contempt for a brother or sister, If it threatens my very soul, as the reference to hell in verse 30, 22 signifies, then how can I, with that threat and that contempt in me and over me, how can I come and in a solemn and joyful way lay my pledge card before God for His glory and the good of His cause in the world? No way. See? Can't happen. Unless you're a colossal hypocrite. Since despising a brother brings us into peril with God, then you can't worship God, you can't pledge to God, while that contempt is in your heart. But that's not precisely what verse 23 says, is it? Look at it again. If therefore you are presenting your offering at the altar, and there remember... Now stop. He does not say, there remember that you have contempt in your heart for your brother which you should now stop and repent of and renounce and get forgiveness for through the blood of Jesus and now offer your offering. That's what I would have expected to follow from verses 21 and 22. This inner anger and, and bent to call somebody a fool and to say raka over them, which means airhead, literally empty head, imbecile. Get rid of that. I've got to get rid of that in me before I do my worship. But that's not what Jesus says. He says, therefore, if you're presenting your offering before the altar and remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift and go be reconciled to your brother. So in verses 21 and 22, he's focused on the, the contempt and the despising 
the anger that can be in my heart towards somebody. But he shifts as he moves over to worship and how we come to worship and what we're to do to get ready for next Sunday morning. He shifts from the inner subjective thing that I'm to deal with in here to the outward relationship that was wrecked when I acted on that by saying fool or some other thing I did wrong which ruined the relationship it has it in shambles that's what he's he's going outside and beyond the subjective thing I need to make right with God yes yes to the objective brokenness of this thing that's out here with another person. And he says, don't just deal privately with God about feeling angry. Go now, objectively, with telephones and notes and faces and touches to another person and be reconciled. And so very practically, very practically, very specifically, what does that mean for this week as we move towards next Sunday? It means two things, at least. Two kinds of praying that I want you to join me in. Please, join me in. First, let's all be praying what we've been talking about in the district meetings. Lord, how shall I participate in freeing the future? What's my part? Is it... You know... Let me just put in a little parenthesis about children here. I've been talking about children in every one of those district meetings, and it occurs to me none of the children is there. And if they're going to know anything about this, they're going to get it from their parents. It hit me because a week ago I asked the boys what they were going to pledge, and they said, what? What? They didn't know what was going on. They had, and so look, parents, we've gotta, we've gotta tell our kids what's going on about freeing the future next Sunday so they can pledge. We want yellow cards from four and five and six year olds and, and third graders and sixth graders and all of our teenagers and they can have 50 cents on the card, which will make all the difference in the world in God's reckoning. Close, close that parenthesis here. So at home, we're thinking and we're praying, Lord, what should we do? What's our part? That's one prayer. Here's the other prayer. Lord, is there someone that I've wronged that I need to take steps to get right with before next Sunday morning? Now, there are a lot of tough questions that that raises. We'll tackle some of them tonight, but I want to tackle one of them this morning. Here's the question. And it's, it's a test. Whether we're committed just to debt elimination or to enmity elimination. Here's the, here's the tough question. Are you responsible for all the grudges and the anger that people feel against you. Are you responsible that people have something against you? This is tremendous.
tremendously urgent. Every person, let's just take the obvious group of people and then you apply it to yourself because it's true of everybody. Every person who has a public life, President of the United States say, Newt Gingrich, Speaker of the House, um, Governor Carlson, uh, news commentator on television, national news commentator, um, radio talk hosts, take James Dobson, pastors who speak to about a thousand people a week. Here's, here's a truth. As soon as any of those people open their mouths, people are offended. Period. No exceptions. Now, you, surely you know that. At any given moment, President Clinton is a hero and he's a fool. He's a jerk and he's a leader with noble standing. And it just depends on who you are. Now, the question is, is he responsible for all of that? How shall he deal with about 80 million people who think he's a jerk and 80 million who think he's a hero? Shall he on Sunday morning go to every one of the 80 million who's made him look like a fool in some cartoon who clearly has something against him? What does Jesus mean when he says, if your brother, your fellow human, has something against you, leave your gift at the altar and go be reconciled. Are you responsible for all the anger that people feel toward you? Are you responsible for all the opposition and all the disagreement? That's a tough question, isn't it? Sounds impossible. I mean, the finest of presidents. You read the history of Abraham Lincoln. He's a hero, right? Everybody loves Abraham Lincoln, right? He was hated. Abraham Lincoln was a hated man. By many people in the South. He would have been killed any day of the year if they could have pulled it off. He is not a hero for millions. Is he responsible for that? Now... It is a dangerous thing to qualify the sayings of the Lord Jesus by the difficulty of fulfilling them in our lives. Beware of saying, well, he can't have meant this because it's hard to do. How do you get to 80 million people if you're the president and want to go to church on Sunday? It's not. So let's not qualify the words of Jesus by our experience. Let's qualify them by the context. Just back up about 14 verses to verse 9 of Matthew 5. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they should be called sons of God. That's what we're talking about. Amen. Amen. Oh, that we might make peace this week for all who, who have something against us, right? Make peace. Be the sons of God. Be reconciled. And then look at verse 10 to 12. Blessed are those 
who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. Notice, not for the sake of sin and wrong, but righteousness. Blessed. Blessed, not guilty. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when men cast insults at you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely. It's falsely, not truly. It happens. On account of me, Jesus, rejoice in that day and be glad. That is, don't let your conscience be troubled that you are guilty of their hostility. Oh, how common it is in America today for people's sense of indignation to hold another person hostage emotionally. And this text says, don't let that happen. Rejoice and be glad. Don't be held hostage by another person's hostility. Rejoice and be glad. Be free, for your reward in heaven is great, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, this is an amazing text, isn't it? It says very clearly that sometimes people will hold things against you that they shouldn't hold against you. Insults will come, persecutions will come, sayings will come falsely, not truly. And I believe that Jesus does not mean you cannot worship while that's happening. Otherwise, Jesus never could have worshipped in the last years of his life. They wanted to kill him. They wanted to shame him. They wanted to trap him in his words. He could have never gone to the synagogue had he had to have spent all of his time going to every Pharisee that hated his guts and made it right. He never would have worshipped. That's just not what Jesus means. And the context makes it plain. He says, in fact, in Matthew 24, 9, about us, you will be hated by all nations on account of my name. In other words, if you are faithful to me, somebody will always have something against you. You gotta handle that emotionally, folks. If you're faithful, somebody will always have something against you. And if it paralyzes you emotionally, if it causes you to take that on and not be able to worship and feel that you are responsible, then you'll never worship. So let me read verses 23 and 24, inserting phrases that I think will interpret them contextually. Jesus says, if you remember in this week, I hope earnestly, pray earnestly with you that husbands and wives and single people will take this yellow card and pray over it as a family or alone. Seek the Lord. And if as you are doing that, you remember this week, that someone has something against you, here's my inserted phrase, because you have wronged them. Close insertion. Then, as much, new insertion, as much as it depends on you, try to be reconciled. Humble yourself 
and reach out. So here are my two qualifications. I'll say them again. You, you judge from the context whether you think I'm distorting the words of Jesus or interpreting them faithfully according to the spirit of his life and the context of his teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. Number one qualification, I'm saying we are only responsible for what others hold against us when it is owing to a real sin or a real bumbling on our part. A real sin or a real bumbling on our part. If we have really sinned, if we have really done something foolish that causes them to take offense at us, we own it and we move on it. That's first qualification. If we have not... And our conscience is clear that what we have done should not have brought forth that opposition, then we're not responsible. You still may yearn and long and talk. Indeed, we should. But you can't own that as a block to worship. Here's the second qualification. When you reach out, as many, I, I just am praying that the phones ring off the hook, that people visit each other, that a lot of give and take, and some of it's going to have to be with people out of town. Remember, some of it's going to go back 20 years for you folks. When that starts happening this week, and you get hung up on, you don't own that. If your heart is right with God, if you have reached out, if you have extended your hand, and they won't hear it, a dad won't hear it. A son won't hear it. A strange spouse won't hear it. Romans twelve eighteen says, Insofar as it depends on you, live at peace with all men. It's just a beautifully sober, realistic word that we are called to bear two burdens. One is the humility and the pain of acknowledging our our sinfulness and our wrong. We all make many mistakes. Pastors make mistakes. Politicians make mistakes. Everybody makes mistakes. Sinful and inadvertent. And we need to own them, humble ourselves, take the egg, go to the person, acknowledge it, ask for forgiveness, and be done. That's one burden we need to bear this week. Here's the second burden. We need to bear the pain when it fails. You need to bear the pain. When it fails. And that pain is worse than the humiliation of trying to make it right. But you cannot let the failure stop you from worshiping. If you've done your part. If you've done what you can do. Some of us have perfectionistic tendencies. And we take it on. And we think, we've got to fix it. We've got to make it right. Or we can't live. And you can't fix it. I promise you, Jesus couldn't fix it. Paul couldn't fix it with Barnabas. And you can't fix all of it. But you can try. When you've tried, you give it to the Lord. So I think that's it. Let me just close by summing it up with three questions to ask this week. Number one, if someone has something against me, is it owing to something that I should have done and didn't do or something that I did and shouldn't have done? 
request. That's question one. If something, if somebody has something against me, I've got hundreds of people with things against me who have things against me. This is a very hard sermon for me to preach. It's a very hard week for me to live, to search my heart. i got people all over the world who are against me, who don't like my theology, who don't like my view on manhood and womanhood, who don't like my Calvinism, who don't like my leadership style, who don't like my throwing my baby into the air. I've got people who have... So I'm, I'm not going to blow that off this week. I, I promise you that as your leader, I will go to the Lord repeatedly this week and say, of all that number of people here at the church, beyond the church, who have something against me, to what degree, oh God, is it owing to my sin and my bumbling? And then here's the second question I'm going to ask. Have I done sufficiently to make a reconciliation? Now, that's a real hard question, because it's subjective. How much is enough? Well, you decide. And third, if I have sinned, and if I have not done enough, will I go? Will I get on the phone? Will you get on the phone? Let's pray now. We'll have prayer teams here at the front for a little bit as we close. And if you just want somebody... To pray that you'd have the courage to do it maybe this week. We'll pray for you for a few minutes before the next service gets going. Father in heaven, next Sunday morning, I long for this room to be filled with clear consciences. Oh God. Oh God. May our our room be filled with clear consciences that though we're all sinners and we will sin this week yet, we have taken steps with our known sin to be right with you through the blood of Jesus and confession and to be right with brothers and sisters whom we have wronged. So Lord, Grant the grace, grant the lowliness, the brokenness, the humility, the contrition this week, and the joy to see that through so that we gather here free for the future next Sunday morning. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.